Hello, I'm sports broadcaster and presenter Paul Persick, and I'm taking you on a journey through sporting events that have stood the test of time. Welcome to Paul Persick Presents. Hello and welcome to the very first series of Paul Persick Presents, taking you on a journey through sporting events that have stood the test of time. I hope you are all as excited to go on this journey as I am. This first series is all about the 1992 World Cup, a cricketing tournament that took the World Cup and its values tenfold. One, through its triumph of Pakistan's cornered Tigers, in surprise of Australia's calamitous exit from the group stages. But what really stood out amongst all of those stories from the World Cup was innovation. Many innovations were introduced for the 1992 World Cup that already had been used in one-day cricket in Australia for many years prior. But it was this tournament that took those innovations tenfold, and we've seen its effect on world cricket since then, not just with night cricket being played all around the world, but in the 2020 game. One of those people who really admire those innovations was a cricket writer who's been writing for a lot of outlets in more recent years but really rose to fame after his book Ruling the World topped the charts. His name? Jonathan Norville. I had the pleasure of speaking to him this week on this very first episode to talk about what stood out for him in terms of the innovation and marketing that got people to watch every match of that 1992 World Cup across Australasia. And that chat begins right now. Jonathan Northall, welcome to the first episode of Paul Persick Presents. Thanks, Paul. Good to talk to you. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to speak with you once again. Now, first of all, I must say a massive congratulations on on the, the success of your book so far, Ruling the World, the story of, of the 1992 World Cup. I must admit I have read it countless times. It's just so good, well detailed, and uh, a lot of interesting stuff that uh, that not many cricket fans had known before the uh, the book was published. So very, very well done. Thank you, Paul. Um, appreciate those words. Yeah, I, I think there was a lot of little details in there. That, that's really what I wanted to do because people know the, the story, so you need to find other little avenues. And I'd like to think that I've found you know, some nuggets that weren't in the public domain. Um, obviously, having access to records like, like I did in the, in, in the research phase really helped to, to find some of those in. I guess I will probably chat about a few of them in, uh, in our discussion today. Is that why, you know, you decided the 1992 World Cup in your book? Because there were so many, you know, facts and figures that, you know, that had been left out for a long time that wanted to be brought to the public domain? That, I mean, that's a good question because the, the initial sort of motivation for the book was that there wasn't one previously that... that Three or four books were written um, after the World Cup in '92, and then then it had not been touched. It's one of those areas that I, I thought needed a new book. I, I thought it needed something to sort of bring to to, to younger cricket fans. Um, I'm old enough to remember it in great detail, but there are fans out there that um, weren't, weren't around in '92, and I, I felt there was, there was a gap. But once I started to do the research, I I, I really found there was lots of Stories that I really could have explored, but it was it was a difficult one because I wanted to to bring some some of those nuggets in, as I, as I said earlier. But 
I could have, I, I think I could have wrote um, probably two, maybe three times the length. I mean, for example, yeah, the book's about 94,000 words and I've got about 120,000 words of transcribed interviews. There's a lot of stuff that was left, so to speak, on the cutting room floor. So, so maybe there's a sequel uh, at some point in the future. Mm, that wouldn't be too bad either, ruling the world the unknown story, so to speak. But uh, we're certainly looking forward to that. And uh, and again, massive congratulations. But we're here today, you know, to talk about, you know, those innovations of 1992. And before that, you know, the World Cup was just, uh, well, in my eyes, another of a multi-team tournament, although it was unknown at the time because you had the old World Series Cup in, in Australia in the uh, in the 80s and 90s. But beforehand, one-day cricket in colour and, and day-night and day night cricket around the world didn't really catch on that much apart from Australia of course but uh, gee 1992 really took the game in the day night form tenfold afterwards yeah I, I think the fact that it was a World Cup and it was the first one in colour that really lit the imagination there was uh, a tournament in 1985 the World Championship of Cricket uh, again held in Australia and that, and that was coloured clothing but I don't really think that probably because of the lack of media coverage, that it really sort of took on the same interest that 92 did. I think the fact that it's a World Cup, that if you're a fan of the sport, the World Cup is of a massive interest to you. And the fact that suddenly it was in colour, the white clothing had gone, and there was floodlit matches. Again, not, not new, but they really started to bring, you know, they brought it to the world stage. And I think it just... It's the imagination that actually cricket doesn't have to be about whites. There is a place for coloured clothing and white balls and night cricket. Again, nothing new. World Series cricket, late seventies. Kerry Packer came up with the idea of floodlit cricket. Um, I'm sure some fans will argue that well, there was floodlit cricket before. There was, but again, it didn't take off. It needed a platform. Like World Series cricket, needed a platform. 92 needed the platform and it gave it and I think there's a lot of things that we see now that we can thank 92 for. Mm, absolutely, you know, with, with Australia setting that platform for, for night cricket, even though there were only three venues at the time that was suitable to host day-night matches, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing in world cricket. But, you know, we're going on to night cricket and coloured clothing for the first time in this World Cup. The expectations among many were so high throughout that World Cup, you know, to lift, to live up to its buzz, you know, with the new innovations uh, that was there. And, and and upon reading your book, there was a lot of expense around that World Cup, somewhere around the, the millions of dollars just to put it together alone. Yeah, uh, it, it was done on a level that had not been seen before, I think, from a broadcasting perspective, from a, from a spectacle perspective. Again, I, uh, I think we, we can kind of thank Kerry Packer a little bit because PBR Marketing, which... Um, was one of Packers' companies were, were involved in, in the process. And I think it's smacks of, of Packer and doing things a little bit differently. Um, and, of course, not one to shy away from spending some money to accumulate some money. Um, and I, I, I think that that's what, what happened with 92, that the ACB and the um, and the New Zealand Cricket Board, they, they had the opportunity to show the world what they could do and, and they, they took it and they run with it. Um, albeit it's a, a, a massive expense. Well, before the beginning, uh, before 1992, of course, we had the first three World Cups held in England and then 87 in India and Pakistan, although at not great expense. But some, I was even chatting with a few older cricket fans um, 
across the streets before this outbreak and, you know, as, as the series had been planned, that the move to India and Pakistan in 1987 would have, would have been a sort of little sign that the World Cup could go elsewhere as well because England, in holding those three World Cups, were retaining the tradition as them being, you know, the real spiritual home of cricket. Yeah, I, I think we can look to 87 to see that the CCI were starting to flex their muscles. That actually, it wasn't just about Australia and England controlling world cricket. Actually, there was there was another big player, um, and I, I don't think it's an accident that 87 went to India and Pakistan. Obviously, India won in 83, um, so that would that would have helped. But I, I really think it, it was a, a signal of the way things were going to turn out with the BCI. CI being such a, a big player in world cricket now. Now, of course, the rights had been uh, first given to Australia. I think, if I can recall, it was January of '89, and there was a lot of planning that had to be going, that had to, you know, be put in place in terms of the World Cup, and that's where the innovations were introduced. You know, where did the Australian cricket ball get all those innovations? Well, they've been using them for a long time, so why not on the world stage? Did it? Was it at the right time? Uh, I think it was definitely at the world time again because of PBL marketing being involved it, it was not going to be another um, white cricket World Cup it was going to be colourful it was going to be something different um, to differentiate from previous World Cups um, you know the use of the white balls um, you know, the black side screens they were, it was always going to be something different and I think um that's what what they did. I mean, one of the stumbling blocks in the planning was the fact that Benton Hedges mm. um, sponsored the tournament, um, and it was just at the time where um, tobacco advertising legislation was was coming in. Certainly in New Zealand, and the organising committee needed to get um, a permission, basically, to be able to have the the, the World Cup logos with Benton Hedges um, on there. Um, I mean, that, that would have been. Quite embarrassing having a World Cup without the official logo, um, but the, the New Zealand government were happy to do that. There were strict guidelines, and uh, there was a massive document that they needed to sign to say, "Well, we'll only do the effectively tobacco advertising in this circumstance." Um, for example, um, on some of the um, merchandise, they weren't allowed to put the logos on. Um, so it was it was considered then, um, which, which, which I found interesting. At Fifth Quarter Tees, we're devoted to helping clubs access their own club wear and merchandise throughout the season. No more worrying about that start of season mass purchase. Of 100 club jumpers that take two years to sell and have to be stored in a club room cupboard. Instead, club coaches, members and supporters can have 24-7 access to all club wear and merchandise. From jumpers and t-shirts to backpacks and mugs. And all it takes is a click of a button. Fifth Quarter Tees. Making life easier for clubs and volunteers. If they weren't allowed to sponsor, to be sponsored by Benson and Hedges, wouldn't it have been even more difficult to you know be on that rush for for a brand new sponsor? Because historically in Australian cricket, Benson and Hedges was the company. You know, the Benson Hedges Test Series, the World Series Cup, they were the brand, the number one brand being promoted in Australian cricket. It would have really changed the image of Australian cricket a lot more than what it did at that time. Yeah, 
they would have caused a legal battle, I would have thought, because um, Benson Edges would not have wanted to to give that up lightly. Um, so, so yeah, I think I think kind of it was of the time where tobacco advertising was um, acceptable in, in in certain quarters. Um, but yeah, it would have, it would have been a massive problem to to have to go and source a new a new sponsor. And so it it would have been a legal battle too. So um, uh, that that's one thing that uh, I, I I thank I thank them that they managed to sort out because it would have just it would have been nasty before the, the World Cup and we would have actually been touched down in Australia. Because the, and, and the and the band had only come two years beforehand. And the so ba- course, you, you broke up, mate. You broke up then, sorry. That's all right, mate. And, and what I was saying was, and, and the ban on, on tobacco advertising around that time had only come two years beforehand. Yeah, the legislation was brought in place in 1990 in, in New Zealand, um, and, uh, and, and that, that, that's where the, the exemption was required. Um, in Australia, it, it, it wasn't a problem at that point, but, but things, things were starting to change, and as as society got into the 90s, that actually the, the, the question was asked about tobacco advertising, is this the most appropriate um, product that, that impressionable eyes should be seeing? Um, and I think with, with the benefit of hindsight, that no, no, they shouldn't. Um, uh, but it was, it was like a lot of things in, when we look back at 92, they were of the time. And of those times then when cigarette companies were acceptable to sponsor anything in Australia, I think they only sponsored the, the cricket for another like three or four years before um, before CUB took over in the summer of, of 96-7. Now, with the sponsorship deal that was out of the way, now Benson and Hedges were secure, now that the planning could begin. And we're going to go through the innovations one by one. And I think this one is very easy to uh, to discuss first because a lot of people are wearing the merchandise still today. And you've, and you've even got one of those shirts. you lucky fella I'm very jealous the coloured clothing of the 1992 World Cup and many people are are, are amazed by how it looked as well I've seen many websites that ranked Australian design uh, Australian cricket jerseys and they often put the World Cup of 92 at either number one or number two just for the way just for the way it looked not just on Australian team but but every single team out there it it just appealed to many absolutely I think think the fact that the design was constant throughout all, all of the kits. Obviously now kit deals are in place and everybody does their own thing and it, it meets ICC guidelines, whereas back in 92, it was kind of, this is what you're wearing, um, which, which I found interesting. Um, I think I think that uniformity of the uniform, if you will, was, was really, it was breathtaking, it was new, and I think they were just eye-catching and... and as you say, a lot of people, even to this day, and I'm certainly one of them, um, think that they're the best. Some some argue that maybe the 99 Australian Cricket World Cup kids the best. I'd say 92 is the winner. Um, but yeah, when you look at crowd shots at, at cricket matches, very often you'll see some sort of variation of, of, of the 92 kids, and I find that... Um, that always pleases me. And, and at least, you know, at every ground, at least one person, at least one or two from every ground around the world, you'll see that camera shot of someone wearing that 92 uh, jersey, whatever team it may be. I must admit, I do get a little jealous because, you know, I've craved one of those because they're always, and as you said, they're so eye-catching, they're so constant. And 
it always says inside my head that, you know, shirts without the, the, the nation having to, you know, have freedom to design the shirt according to their own guidelines, maybe constant one-day World Cup uniforms could have been better, you know, but, uh, you know, it, it, it always isn't to be, you know, in this sort of sport. They have that free range to design. And they were able to do that at World Cup afterwards, but uh, it was always 92 that, you know, caught everybody's eye. Yeah, I mean, uh, as you say, the 96 kit, that that was um, that was that was uniform as well, but but yeah, I think I think because it was the first, um, and you know they they become iconic. And yes, I do have one of the one of the original ones. I'm not I don't hundred percent. I'm not sure that it's actually player issue. Um, I, I don't think it is. Um, but it's definitely made by ISC who made the the kits in '92. So. Uh, I, I do treasure that shirt, and no, Paul, you can't buy it off me. <laughs> That's a bummer. That oh well, I'll try and get uh, I'll try and get one myself as soon as this crisis thing is over. It, would you think cricket one day kits and twenty twenty kits would be better in uniform, or do you think you know it was just the, those signs of the times? Uh, it was definitely of the time. I would like may, maybe one tournament for them to try that again. I doubt whether it's going to happen because again, every team seems to sign kit deals and sponsorship deals, mm. and there's probably too many legal um, bits in the way to, to stop that happening. But I just like it. Imagine a BBL, you know, this year's BBL. If they, they all had added the, the same style of kit, obviously with the team's colours, I think I think they would look great. Oh, just for something different. Mm, give them that, that, that touch of that 92 magic that was uh, brought on in that World Cup. So that was coloured clothing, and we all know how much that still catches on in, uh, in world cricket today. Another one that was really a vital tool for you know, the going forward of one-day cricket, especially in this World Cup, was uh, day-night matches. Now, we know the first venue to have this was uh, VFL Park in, in the World Series cricket days. Then the Sydney Cricket Ground came along. Then the MCG and all other major Australian cricketing venues uh, took hold. The day-night matches in this World Cup, you know, going back and, and watching the footage, really made it sort of a, a more festive atmosphere to all the games compared to all the others that were run in the daytime. Yeah, absolutely. I think... A day-night match where there's something actually riding on on the results, it, it makes it a fantastic spectacle. Um, yeah, I've been to some T20 games and one-day games at a day-nighters, and it just feels it's just it's not a special occasion. Whereas those games in the World Cup, because because it was a World Cup and it was at night, um, and then you, you you've got all that atmosphere to deal with um, you, you know you've got the weather um, and I, I think it just well, bringing all that together in a World Cup uh, just, just makes it makes it superb um, I, you know I'm a fan of day night games um, I think it, it gives families an opportunity to get to games which which was one of the reasons why um, they, were, they were brought in in the first place and I just I just think it gives it gives people opportunity to see some cricket but in the World Cup those games in 92 you know, it just it just felt like there was, you knew there was something right on it, and it just added to the drama. And also, as you mentioned, the different conditions that each team, especially batting second, you know, under the lights, have to experience as well, with with the ball moving a little bit off the seam, a little bit of dew on the ground, and that made it an even extra challenge for the sides batting second. And that's and that's what added to 
the significance and the importance of, of, of those matches. Case in point, um, a couple matches I'll, I'll discuss, if I may, England and South Africa at the MCG, and also Australia and Pakistan from uh, the WACA ground. Those, those matches really added a challenge to the side batting second, even with, with, the, with the different conditions. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, um, knowing that the rain rule, which I'm, I know we'll, we'll discuss it a little bit later, was in place as well. Batting second um, was, was going, to, going to be interesting. Um, so yeah, it, uh, yeah, it, 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 the, 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 you know, those games, um, they, they just they just felt like they were meaningful. Um, and I think that, 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 that's, that, that's all, you, all you want. Um, and that, that's what really, you know, I take from, from those games. Now, looking back on all the footage in the research that you did for this book, what sort of the day-night games, which one of them in those three venues really has, you know, that sort of place in it at number one? Uh, you can't go past the, the, the semi-final, you know, the, um, the, the England-South Africa semi-final for all, the, for all the drama, for all the... You know, Kepler Vessels knowing what he what he knew, um, mm. and and the the overrate being so slow, um, and knowing that there was rain coming, uh, and you know, and and, and batting second. It, it, I, it, uh, for me, that game is perfect because of its imperfection. You're absolutely right, and, and, and also not knowing when the rain was going to come. It's always that matter of if, but also when that rain's going to come down, because if I can recall, the rain only came down with about only one and a half overs still left in the game, and there was, it amounted to like 22 off seven, and then 22 off one, and many, many people were just like, oh, what ridiculous rain ruling, but as you mentioned, the overrate that South Africa had, many, many do forget what happened with, with South Africa's bowling earlier that day. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, they certainly didn't do themselves any favour you know, not getting through the overs. Um, you know, having spoken to, to Kepler, he knew he knew the rain was coming because obviously with his relationship having played for Australia, he knew mm. he knew the groundsman and they were having a chat before the game. Um, and, and, and he was told, you know, it is going to rain at some point. We just don't know when. Um, and I just I just find that. Um, I find that interesting. Um, it, 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 just, it just made the match so dramatic. Um, it was it was a sad way to finish. South Africa didn't deserve for the um, for the way they lost. However, they knew they knew the rain rule. They knew the way the most productive overs formula worked. They knew that overs were going to be deducted, and when overs were deducted, normally you. You didn't lose much of the target, so um, you, you can't you can't blame them. However, um, it was such a sad way because they, they played so well, um, and, the, and you know that's where the, the, the choker take for South Africa really started. Um, do they deserve that? Well, that's a different conversation for a different day. Mm. Um, but it was such a such a such a sad way to to end. Um, you know, you've only got to look at Graham Gucci's face. When he shakes hands at the end of the game with Brian McMillan and Dave Richardson, mm. it, it, it's embarrassing. It, you know, the ICC should not have put teams in that position. You know, England and, and Gooch got a lot of flack for that. They didn't invent the they didn't invent the rules. You know, they they, they were subject to them the same. They they knew them as much as 
and South Africa did. Um, but as I say, all of that to me just made that game perfect with its imperfection. Yeah, it nearly had it. it had absolutely everything. I'd have to go along with that, you know, with that England-South Africa semi-final. I'd possibly put in England and India, uh, the, the game at the Wacker in the, in the second game. You know, yep. that was really close. They had a lot of good performances with the bat. Robin Smith for England and, and uh, Chris Shrikanth and... Uh, and Sachin Tendulkar, who had quick fire knocks, but then it all started to, you know, fall apart because there were so many momentum changes in that game when, you know, England started to get a bit of a slump in at the start. Then they got back with Robin Smith and then the fielding of, uh, of Ian Botham and, and his work with the ball was just uh, excellent. And, and the final as well at, uh, uh, at the MCG between England and Pakistan. That too had great elements of drama and, and such a storybook ending as well, that match, because, you know, you had the triumph of, of Pakistan's, um, quote, cornered Tigers. Uh, through the inspirational leader of uh, Imran Khan, the leadership of Imran Khan in that game. Now, you mentioned the rain rule. That's where we're going to go to next. Uh, the most productive overs method at the time that was introduced in 1992. Many would think that it would protect the side batting first a lot more. Well, uh, it did, but uh, some would say a little too much, to put it mildly, because of the deduction of runs and, uh, and overs based on how many runs the batsman, the batting team scored in one particular over. It proved quite controversial. Yeah, it was a clearly flawed formula. Um, I, I can't believe it actually was accepted and, and put in place. That no one at the time had thought actually was the better way of doing this because you know, it's, it, it, it's not an equitable way of, of, of calculating a revised target. Um, I, I guess. If we if we look at where we are now with with DLS, uh, you know the failure of '92 was the rain rule, but at least it was the genesis for a much better solution. Um, is DLS perfect? No, it certainly isn't. However, it's a it's a much better way of calculating a revised target than most productive overs because. That, that rain roll was uh, it was abysmal. It just uh, it, it was just terrible. You know, you you, um, you bowled tight, and then then you were you were punished in effect if it started to rain. And I just find that. Uh, I find that ridiculous. Now, in your book, you uh, sought the contact of Professor Stephen Stern from uh, the University of Queensland, and of course, he's the the custodian, uh, custodian I should say, of uh, the Duckworth Lewis method. Now, the Duckworth Lewis Stern. Um, what what did he have to say about um, you know this particular ruling of uh, of the nineteen ninety two World Cup? Yeah, he was similarly disparaging as um, as Messrs Duckworth and Lewis when I spoke to them as well. Um, it, 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 Mathematically, it made no sense, and as mathematicians, all, all three of them <laughs> found it um, <laughs> incomprehensible. Um, so, so they, yeah, I can I can see why Professor Stern um, has become custodian because he was of a very similar mindset to um, to to um, Duckworth and, and, and Lewis. Now, case in point for the most productive overs, beside the semi-final, because we know what happened in that match, we know a couple of other rain-affected matches that could have made a difference via if the Duckworth-Lewis method had been introduced in 1992, and you detailed some of them uh, quite well in, uh, in that book. Yeah, um, I, I felt it was important to show what the result could have been. Um, uh, it, it, it's important not to look at it from a a revisionist viewpoint because they, they weren't the um, the rules in place at the time. Um, but I, I just felt to, to really just sort of show how poor 
the, the, um, the, the, the rain will was um, and, and what could have happened. Um, so, yeah, so, so to me, uh, you know, I, I want to find out what, what were the, the likely targets? Because, again, it was difficult because, um, you know, the, the tables are constantly revised um, in, in, in the DLS method. Um, so, again, it's difficult. But, that, you know, I was, I was given a, a very good calculation based on, on, on what they are at the moment. And I, it was just uh, it was just interesting that, you know, some games, yeah, right result, other games, not so much. Australia and India would have been a, another case in point as well, that game up at the Gabba where Australia just got up. And uh, Indians, uh, the Indians uh, felt rightfully so they were done a bit unjust because of the rain because uh, it was such a tight game and, and the DLS provided a quite an intriguing what-if scenario. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's a few, a few actually callers, isn't there, you know, where things could have, could have been different. You know, you look at, you look at Adelaide and England, Pakistan, obviously mm. that, that could have change the entire tournament but um, I try not to, to dwell on them too much because as I say I, I wasn't trying to, to to write a revisionist history of, of the World Cup it was just really for illustrative purposes but, but, but it still, you know, provides, you know, a lot of talk, you know, amongst some of those passionate fans overseas, especially, you know, you just mentioned there the England-Pakistan game that, you know, pretty much sealed Pakistan's fate at that stage, you know, with one point, and that saved them and got them through at the expense of, um, of Australia and, uh, and the West Indies. And, uh, you know, some may say if, if the game um, had been won by England, there would have been no corner ti- Tigers triumph, you know, it's always those what-if scenarios. Now, another innovation I, I nearly forgot to, uh, to uh, message you about beforehand, but I think this is one that we could all agree for a time, and some would say I reckon still is the best format, was the format itself for, for the 1992 World Cup. All nine teams playing each other once, and some would say it was the fairest format at that time because you get to play every single one of them, unlike in those four earlier World Cups where you had the split groups, two groups of four, play each other once or play each other, play each other twice. The 92 format, some may, some may say, was a very, very fair format in the context of the tournament. Oh, absolutely. I, I, as you say, in the context of the tournament, it was the fairest. Everybody gets to play everybody else, and, and then the, the, the top four um, then contest the semi-finals and, and, and the final. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depends on how you look at it, you, you really can't have that now because there's more than a top nine team. Um, because world cricket is becoming more global, um, you know, associate teams coming through, but that's never going to be the, the position anymore, or shouldn't, or we shouldn't be in a position, we should have a, an, an inclusive World Cup. So if we have an inclusive World Cup, we're going to have more than nine teams. So the, the round-robin format, which happened in 92, isn't going to happen anymore. Um, but for 92, it absolutely was the right way to, to go. It made every game important, didn't it, regardless of where each nation was positioned on, on the ICC rankings? I, I think so. You know, Some people say, oh, well, games towards the end, once teams know they're being knocked out, um, they, they, they're just dead games for them. And, and I'd, I'd say that's doing professional cricketers a disservice because you want you want to win, you you want to win games. So if, you, if you're knocked out, you still you still want to beat someone. Barbway being case in point, you know, they could have just rolled over at Albury. You know, they were rolled for 134. Um, you know we're already at the tournament, so let's just get the game over lads and, and go and have a few beers. But actually, that that wasn't the case. So that that game for me 
demonstrates that the round robin format it was the appropriate one, and obviously we know that England, England couldn't couldn't get those in the thirty-four runs and what they won the game. At Fifth Quarter Tees, we're devoted to helping clubs access their own club wear and merchandise throughout the season. No more worrying about that start of season mass purchase. Of 100 club jumpers that take two years to sell and have to be stored in a club room cupboard. Instead, club coaches, members and supporters can have 24-7 access to all club wear and merchandise. From jumpers and t-shirts to backpacks and mugs. And all it takes is a click of a button. Fifth Quarter Tees. Making life easier for clubs and volunteers. Yeah, and, and what about, you know, you touched on the fact that it was in Albury as well. I think that connects to another introduction, the games being played in regional venues, you know, to get audiences away not not just in those larger capital cities but also those rural areas like Albury as you mentioned Canberra even the nation's capital hosted a game uh Berry and uh well an unfortunate tale for one of the areas Mackay in uh, in the north of Queensland yeah um, I, I I think I think the, the fact that Mackay is the two regional areas was a positive and the fact they didn't do that in two, 2015 was, was an opportunity missed from Cricket Australia, from my perspective. But Mackay was a great story in itself. The, the fact that I was able to get so many words out of two balls was testimony to the to, to the backstory from Mackay. Um, I, it was one of those that I really wanted to to find out more about. So there's got to be more than just those two balls. Um, and I, I went to Mackay and spoke to Barry Johnson, who was responsible basically for, for making the game go ahead at Mackay, he's still on the um, Queensland Cricket Board now um, and it was it was a great story, you know, the, the fact that they had no rain in, in I think it was three months and then mm. the night before it starts to, starts to rain heavily and you know, they, they want to get the game on, it's, you know, the rain stops, so Barry calls a mate of his, he just happens to have an helicopter so he flies in and trying to drive the ground with a helicopter, you wouldn't, you wouldn't get that now. Health and safety wouldn't allow you to fly an helicopter. Yeah, you can't allow the helicopters. But it was such a, it was such a beautiful story. It was, I, yeah. I, it tinged with sadness. You know, the people in Mackay deserve better. But, you know, they they certainly got their money's worth in the, the, the entertainment, you know, the fact that some of the Indian cricketers were doing um, some... some Aerobics on the outfield with uh, a local aerobics group, um, and and as, as Barry says and it's quoted in the book, um, they certainly drunk the bars dry, so they certainly found, found some stuff to do while they were waiting for the cricket. But um, yeah, I, I, I think the fact that you know the regional venues were used in '92. Just another reason why 92 was such a great World Cup. All that, you know, for just two deliveries that were bold and the rain comes at, you know, in, in the context of things, possibly the worst time for, for rain to come in. Yeah, it was the start of March, it was the start of autumn, but there couldn't have been no worse a time for the rain to restart after a dry spell because it was such a big occasion at the time for, for Mackay, you know, to finally host a, an international game. Yeah, Barry has worked hard to bring 
Mackay in, in, into the thinking for, for Queensland cricket. Yeah, there's been some WBBL games up at Arrow Park mm. um, since. So uh, there's a lot of hard work gone in, and, and uh, Mackay, Barry, they, they all deserve, deserve better. Um, but it's just another one of those beautiful stories mm. from 92. It's perfect in its imperfection. Now another beautiful story in that is staying with the with the regional venues. Um, the setup for the match between Sri Lanka and the West Indies in Berry in, in South Australia, and uh, it's it's a nickname got to quite an origin, you know, and being known as uh, as the Big Orange. Yeah, Berry was was another one of those regions that I you know I never heard of really until I started doing research and and obviously speaking to some of the characters and. Um, you know the curator there, and um, obviously it's South Australia. It's really hot, um, but you know, on the morning of the game, the the curator's wife decided that she was going to play a joke on him and got a hose pipe and sort of put it on the window so he wakes, thinking he's had rain. So he jumps up and starts. Actually, you know, it's a beautiful summer's day. Um, but yeah, I just. That's cruel, that is. That, that, that's cruel. But again, that's just one of those, those lovely stories that have definitely not, not been found out. What, one of the reasons, you know, what I, why I wanted to do the book was to, to find out, you know, there's lots of people stories right mm. around 92. We all, we all know about the creepy. And there were so many in that book and, and, and through the organisation of, of that World Cup as well. But also New, New Zealand had, had a few opportunities to play at regional venues. I think one of them really stood out. And watching this game, the, the clip of this game, just this beautiful park venue at Pukekera Park in, uh, in New Plymouth. Just looking back on the footage, you, you could not imagine a better place in, in, in a parklands to, uh, to play cricket in New Zealand. It just looks so good. Yeah, absolutely. It was such a such a wonderful ground to play, and such a small ground, which is why um, I think I think it was the, the highest scoring game in in the World Cup. Correct. Um, but um, you know, it was the only the only time that either team reached three hundred. But you, you look at scores now in the World Cup, and you know, four four hundred is easily achievable. But the fact that there are only two scores of above three hundred in a whole World Cup is just is just breathtaking. Mm, and, and it just goes to show no matter where you are or no matter who you play, you've got to get the job done on the day or otherwise you won't be getting those two points. And uh, that, that game too, as he said, was, was just an excellent game of cricket, high standard between Sri Lanka and Zimbabwe, two, two nations that weren't even expected to, to make a threat for, uh, for that final four. They just put on a game they, they just put on a game to die for. It was just a, an amazing game. Now, we know that 92 introduced so many good things to the game of cricket. We look at it, you know, 20 plus years on. It's, it's almost unbelievable. 30 years since the 1992 World Cup. I wonder, I wonder if there's going to be something to commemorate the 30th anniversary of, of 1992. You know, a tournament that has really had everything. It still has an everlasting legacy since that time, since that final was over on March 25. I wonder if somewhere along the line, some fans around the world, maybe particularly Pakistan that won the tournament, could commemorate its 30th anniversary because I don't think in terms of the format, the innovations and the context of world cricket, there will never be another tournament quite like 1992. No, I, I think you're right. I think Pakistan fans will definitely commemorate the, the 30th anniversary of winning the World Cup. Um, I, I don't think that 
England fans look at the tournament in great fondness. I don't think Australian fans do at all. New Zealand fans, um, it, it certainly was their, their, their biggest disappointment until until last year. Um, so that, that's probably changed Anon's to his view slightly. Um, but yeah, it, 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 I, I hope that something happens because it was such a great tournament. Um, yeah, obviously it's a little book sale, so selfishly that'd be nice. But, you know, it's such a such, such an important tournament, um, but I think I, I'd like to see that something was done to just commemorate it. Because it had a feeling of, of something really different, wasn't it, compared to all the previous four World Cups? It really felt like a different tournament altogether. Yeah, absolutely. Because because of all the, all the things that we talked about, you know, the, the colour kids, the, the day night games, the, you know, the use of the wild ball, um, some of some of the characters as well. You know, it was the, the, the meeting of, of sort of the the old guard and then the new. You know, the you know, Imran Khan and Kapil Dev about to disappear, but you've got Brian Lara and, and Sachin Tendorka. Um And I, I just found out that a fantastic dynamic too, that you, you've sort of got lots of innovations that were just about to happen. You know, you can see this sort of the, the germination of Sri Lanka as a, as a one-day cricket team. You know, that just four years later, they go, they go and win the World Cup themselves. Mm. Um, there's, there's, lots of, there's lots of these things that came out of 92 that I think modern cricket fans can, can look back at this tournament and go, yeah, actually, I can see where that came from. And I certainly can agree with you. And, you know, to, to this day, you know, I may not have been, many youngsters like myself may not have been alive for it at the time, but we know enough and, you know, there's so many clips that are emerging all around. Think to ourselves, wow, what would it have been like at that time if we got to see a game? But there's all these clips and all these wonderful photos that capture such what a such what a such a, such a great tournament that 1992 was, and I don't think we'll we'll ever see a tournament like that again. Even if even though we've had some great matches in in World Cup since, and we had a great one last year with the with the final and and England getting home in a final that I don't think we'll ever see again. I don't think as a whole there will be an, another tournament like 1992. Now, in closing, in closing, Jonathan. Um, in terms of you know your writing of the book, is that something that you'll always be proud of in terms of all the projects that you have done? Because you know there was a lot of preparation, hours and hours and hours worth of preparation, and you execute. And I have to say, the result is excellent. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it, it, it's your baby. You've it, it, it lived with me for for years, um, and you obviously put it out there. You know that you're going to get criticism. Um, and as long as it's constructive criticism, I'm, I'm always happy. Um, you know, but I, I'm, I'm happy with what I've produced. If I, if I were to write the book now, I would probably write, write certain things differently, but that's all part of the, the creative process. As, as an end product, um, I think it does exactly what it says on the team. Um, I think it brings new, new things um, to, to the table that, would, that had not been available because of, purely because of... Um, I've been able to get access to organising committee minutes and things like that. Um, so yeah, so uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of it, Paul. 
Well, we certainly are. All the cricketing uh, world, no doubt, certainly is a magnificent project. And all the innovations that have been in this World Cup have uh, really stood the test of time. And it's been great chatting with you as well, uh, Jonathan, to talk about all these innovations, all these great people stories on this first episode of this first series of, uh, of Paul Persick Presents. Thank you so much for, for chatting with me uh, this afternoon. And uh, no doubt we'll be looking forward to uh, another great project uh, from yourself and discussing more of, of that great World Cup in, uh, in years to come. Paul Persick Presents is a series written, edited and presented by me, Paul Persick. If you would like to check out Paul Persick Presents social media content, you can go onto the show pages on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Episodes are available on SoundCloud, Wooshka, Podbean, Anchor FM and on iHeartRadio. If you have a sporting event that you would like to see as a future series of Paul Persick Presents, then comment on our Facebook, Twitter and Instagram pages. Paul Persick Presents is a Persick Spooner production.